The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox today. Vena is attending the National Real Estate Investor Association mid-year event. And I am here today uh, talking about a subject that is special to many of us, insurance. Insurance is often a confusing topic. Everyone involved in our business needs to have their properties insured, often needs to have their businesses insured. And it it's a subject that People have uh, a lot of different inputs about. Uh, people call me up and they've got insurance coverage that I would call barely acceptable. Uh, I'm a property manager. I talk to people about what their coverages are. And our guest today is a gentleman named Tim Norris. Tim has been... Tim, are you there? I am, Jim. Good to hear from you. All right. Me. Good to hear you, too. I haven't spoken to you in a while. Uh, Tim, how long have you been in the insurance business? Um, t- probably 25 years at this juncture. Okay, well, that gives you some uh, some good background uh, to, to be joining us today. Now, whether people are landlords or rehabbers or whatever they're doing in real estate, uh, there's insurance, you know, liability and property insurance. Uh, there's lots of different kinds people don't often know. So let's talk about a couple things. Before we start, let me remind everybody, if you have questions, you can call them in to uh, us here at the station at 800 669 9898. Actually, that's a different number. I'm not sure. We need. And then the toll-free is the... I'm not sure what number. That was the number Vina gave me. The, the, sta- the station number here is 877-772-9658. Or the, uh, locally in Cincinnati, it's 772-9658, the area code 513. Or you can send emails to askvina at gmail.com, and they'll get forwarded to me. So Tim, uh, we sent you a list of questions. You said if we if we could do half of them, we could probably squeeze in in an hour. But we're going to try to at least start with that first one. Uh, what are the various types of insurance a, a real estate investor or an entrepreneur in real estate should even be aware of and familiarize themselves with as they look at at getting coverage? Yeah, I mean, if you think of it, Jim relative to how you think of your own homeowner's insurance, the two big, if you will, coverages that are um, apparently needed is the property and the liability. In other words, you need to cover that which you would know as an asset, the actual building or dwelling itself, the property coverage that is itself from things like fire and windstorm and hail, those types of things. And then you've got the liability coverage to protect you as the owner or your entity as the owner um, from incidences such as tenants slipping and falling, um, you know, God forbid a fire occurs and somebody gets hurt and the fire was determined to be the cause of you or your contractor, so to speak, where you as the owner could get drug in. 
So I think from a, a simple perspective, just consider property and liability as the, the basics, so to speak. Okay. Now, I would guess if you have a business itself, you should look at that, but that's really a separate subject than the actual the, the real estate insurance. Yeah, not so much a separate subject is really think of the the entity, whether that be you as an individual, a sole proprietor, or you know an LLC or a trust. The entity that owns the property, really more often than not, should be considered the first named insured. That party that garners either the protection or the benefit, whatever the case may be, whether it be um, liability or property pr protection, respectively. Um, but think of that entity. The, so when people call or, or talk to us or me or one of our team. They say, well, I've got an LLC or I've got a uh, land trust or I'm thinking about buying my first property. You know, how should I buy it? What should I buy? Well, really, the, the answer to that question is a little bit more complex than one may imagine because it relates to not just the um, asset protection strategy that you may need to employ, you should consider, but also tax planning, estate planning, um, gosh, even financial planning. But at the end of the day, remember, if when I say you, I'm meaning – you, your entity, whether that be an LLC, a trust, or what have you, that should be who is insured. The the risk itself, whether it be the property that is the home or the, the dwelling, so to speak, or the liability, um, that doesn't change regardless of who or what controls or owns that that property. Okay. Well, let me go to the, the one of the biggest questions that always comes up when I'm talking to owners. Should they have an actual cash value policy? or ACV, or replacement cost insurance. Can you tell us what those are, yeah. and what do you recommend to an investor and a landlord? Sure, it's a good question. And, and the terminology, replacement costs and actual cash value, many times are, are misconstrued or misdefined as um, equivalent to the terms market value and the terms um, reconstruction value. Think of the think of the the insurance terminology of actual cash value and replacement costs is really how ultimately, a, especially a partial loss claim, would be settled. And the easiest way to understand that is via a hypothetical example. Let's just say you have a fire in a kitchen in one of your rental dwellings, and you're on replacement cost coverage. What that means is this. The damage that, again, in a hypothetical fire, let's just say it was $30,000 of reparable damage. On a replacement cost policy or with replacement cost coverage, here's how it would work. And again, I'm oversimplifying the claims process, of course, but nonetheless, I think this will help. That which was damaged has depreciation levied against it, against it in the initial settlement. So $30,000 of reparable damage. Let's just say that the kitchen itself, when you factor in everything that was damaged in that kitchen, the depreciation levied against it was just, say, 30%. Now, bear in mind, depreciation is different for different types of things. For instance, kitchen cabinets tend to last longer than kitchen floors. But again, to try to keep this example as simple as possible, let's just say in our hypothetical claim that the, the depreciation was 30%. So you have $30,000 to repair everything, 30% depreciation on that $30,000, which is $9,000, and then, of course, you got that wonderful thing called a deductible. And let's just say it's $5,000. So even with replacement cost coverage, your initial settlement is handled that way. $30,000, less our hypothetical depreciation of $9,000, less the deductible. Your first check that you get is $16,000, even with replacement cost coverage. You can do with that $16,000 whatever you want. If 
you need more than that $16,000 to repair what it is that was damaged. You simply need to exhaust the 16000 and replacement cost coverage gives you the ability to recoup that $9,000 of depreciation, again, in our hypothetical claims example. That in simple terms and as simple explanation as I can make it, that's how replacement cost coverage works. It simply means you have the ability to recoup the initial depreciation levied against that claim. Actual cash value is a little bit different. The biggest difference is you don't have the ability to recoup the depreciation. And the second difference is typically an insurance company will give the ability to insure that property to a lower amount. So those of you out there who probably bought your first investment property um, let's just throw a number out for 75 grand. You put 25 grand in it, and the ARV may be 125, and the insurance company comes back and says, "Well, that's great, Jim, but you know it's a 1,200 square foot single family renter, and our replacement cost calculations indicate that you need to insure it to 190 grand." And you're sitting back scratching your head, thinking, "Well, what does that have to do? It's not worth that." Even though I just used the term again, replacement cost relative to what it would cost to rebuild that structure. That term should really be known as reconstruction cost, that which it takes to rebuild a structure after a catastrophic loss, whether it be a fire, tornado, or what have you. All that stated, the answer to the question is not as simple, again, as you would think it would be. In other words, I don't feel that there's a carte blanche answer for every investor to carry replacement cost or carry actual cash value. I think it's relative not only to the individual investor's appetite for risk, but also for the individual location. For instance, if a client or a prospect says to me, you know what, Tim, tell you what, I don't even want to talk to an insurance company unless the damage from a from apparel is over $10,000. And you know what? The little things, a theft of an air conditioning condenser unit, some copper out of the electric box, that type of stuff, I'm self-insuring those things anyway. Then my strategy for them would likely be to direct them towards actual cash value coverage because I just alluded to. It gives them the ability to protect their investment yet self-insure a little bit more of that risk and, of course, then pay lower costs towards the insurance premiums that they pay. Somebody may say to me, though, you know what, I get it, but, man, I'll tell you what, i got some nicer properties. They're larger. And at the end of the day, I want to make sure I've got enough there to repair them and get them back to workable condition. I'm a little cash poor right now. I'm just starting my business model out. And I may have the tendency to push them more towards the replacement cost type of insurance to give them the ability to recoup that depreciation as I just described. And they also, again, apply to the actual location itself. If you're um, maybe a buy-and-hold individual investor, but periodically you buy one, you fix it up, and you sell it to another investor or sell it to a new homeowner, if you're only going to hold it for a short time and you bought, bought it at a, call it what it is, a deep discount, then your need to insure a true replacement cost may not be there as much because, again, your risk isn't as large as somebody that's going to buy and hold that property. So I wish I could just say, yeah, everybody should buy replacement cost insurance, but I really believe it depends on the investor themselves and the type of properties in which they're investing. All right. Uh, as you can see, everyone, these are these are not simple questions. Uh, we're about to take a break here. Before we do, let me just remind everyone, if you have questions, uh, call them in to uh, 877-772-9658 or email to askvina at gmail.com. And we'll be back in a couple minutes uh, after this break. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate. I am Jim Shapiro, here today with Tim Norris. Uh, before we start, let me just remind everyone, we are sponsored by the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati, and we have our 
a second uh, monthly membership meeting tomorrow, June 19th, at the Community Action Agency in Roselawn on uh, Redding and Langland Farm. Uh, we've got three excellent uh, topics being talked about. Uh, I am speaking about how to screen tenants uh, for the New Investor Forum. At the Active Investor Forum, Jerry Fink is going to be talking about using systems to manage your business. And then at 7.30, we've got the uh, director of the Section 8 uh, Housing Choice Voucher Program coming to talk to us about what's going on in Cincinnati with the Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. Uh, they are an interesting organization. And if you have involvement with Section 8 Housing, I invite you to encourage you to come and uh, tell her what you think because they're not always our favorite agency in our business. Tim, uh, let me go back to uh, Tim Norris today. Tim... You know, we talked about a couple things, uh, insurance covering, you know, the loss to the property and liability. Do all policies cover both, you know, both of those topics or are some policies more liability and some are, are property? Uh, how does that separate out and what are the limits yeah. and levels you recommend? Sure, yeah. Many of the many of the big box carriers, you know, the state farms of the world, the all states and all that, typically they'll write property and liability in what's called a package policy. So you'll get both. Think of your homeowner's policy. It has some liability coverage as well as property, personal contents, those types of things. However, some carriers do one or the other and maybe not both, or if they do them both, they do them on actually separate contracts. So um, it, in a sense, one of the questions, and I know the folks out there aren't reading the questions that you and I are reading, but... Um, you know, it just depends on the carrier and the provider set insurance on whether they combine them together or whether they separate them out. Um, you know, some of the things to consider, um, the things that I recommend when it comes to liability limits, I'm kind of a smart aleck at heart, and I know you and I know one another personally for a while. You know that to be a fact. But I always joke and say, well, tell me who's going to file the claim, and I'll tell you how much liability coverage is enough. In my mind, and this is more advice than, than it is, or more opinion than it is advice, Liability insurance is just one part of your asset protection strategy. The work that you do with um, folks like we know, like John Heyer out of Columbus and accountants all over the country, um, for the folks out there on the, on the uh, radio tonight, as well as your financial planner, your tax planner, all those people, think of that, the work that you do with them, whether it be forming, asset, forming structured entities such as LLCs, trusts, some of the things we've already talked about, that's the castle walls in your moat. Think of that as kind of the foundation of your asset protection strategy. Think of the liability insurance, and it's kind of a corny medieval analogy. Think of that as the archer in that watchtower. In other words, that concept works better when both are employed, that is the archer in the castle walls in the moat, than either of them work by themselves. And all that really leads to what we hear a lot of, and I see a lot on some of these websites out there like Bigger Pockets or the Creative Investor where people will say, hey, how much liability insurance should I carry um, or should I just form an LLC? And I don't think it's an either-or answer. I think it's both. In other words, you sit down periodically with those aforementioned advisors and ensure that your strategy is still sound and then supplement that, that asset protection strategy with a liability insurance that you can garner from, from the insurance companies out there. Um, of course, as everyone knows, insurance is a for-profit business, and they don't cover everything. Um, think of the liability insurance typically that you garner for these investment properties covers two things. It covers property damage, and it covers bodily injury. Things like sexual harassment, things like um, contractual issues and all that, 
some policies may pick that up, especially if there were specialty companies. Sometimes you have to pick up coverage for those things um, on separate coverages or separate policies. But at the end of the day, the liability coverage that you carry to protect your investment properties or protect you from the perils that these investment properties um, may cause to manifest, two things, property damage, liability. So think about, God forbid, a fire occurs. I'm to find out you just didn't do a very darn good job when you sent one of your employees out there to work on the electric box. Thank goodness nobody was hurt, but that fire that you caused in that rental property damaged the contents of your tenant. Well, that's property damage liability. Same fire occurs, and now, goodness gracious, somebody was hurt. That's bodily injury that's covered by that liability protection. Anything outside of those things, again, you're usually paying an extra premium for, or it's on a specialty-type policy or specialty-type coverage, or it's separate um, from the property and um, property damage and bodily injury that you pick up from liability insurance. Let me ask you a question. Someone's got a uh, rental property in a, we'll call it a, a, a stable middle-class working neighborhood, and someone else has a, or maybe that same person has a property in a low-income, you know, rougher, less safe neighborhood, uh, more of a, you know, inner-city community. Is one statistically? Are you more at risk of getting sued by a tenant over something in one versus the other? And, and should you have different kind of coverage strategies? Often ownership strategies would be to, say, separate your higher-end properties from your lower-end properties because if you're going to get sued over a $40,000 rental house, you don't want to have your $180,000 rental house in the same entity. What about sure. the insurance strategy? Should you Should you be considering the kind of community and tenant base you might be dealing with as you consider how to insure your properties? Yeah, I, I think maybe you do relative to what you just alluded to, um, you know, planning with the asset protection attorney and the accountant and all that. But when it comes to the insurance, and, you know, currently our program, we're ins we insure about 38,000 locations across the country. And on an annual basis, we, we see less than 50 liability claims. So to put it in perspective, I don't know that there is a statistical difference between your um, um, chances of getting sued in those aforementioned lower-income neighborhoods, so to speak, versus a higher-income neighborhood. Um, but in and of itself, believe it or not, the liability claims don't manifest near as much as one may think um, on a, not only a frequency perspective, but, but from a severity perspective. And I knock wood every time I say this. You know, I've been in, in this business 25 years and dealing predominantly, especially over the last 20 or so years, with real estate investors. And I'm not saying it won't occur, but I've never seen a claim exceed a million dollars. not saying it won't, and I'm not saying it won't happen to you, but we just haven't seen it. Um, it with that stated as well, our average liability claim on those 50 a year, the payout, is less than $100,000. Now, granted, God forbid there's some significant liability, um, a fire occurs and a kid gets killed, you know, that could, that could mess up my statistics really quickly. But in and of itself, you just would think that there'd be more liability claims occurring. There just aren't. Um, so my strategy would be, again, to, to meet periodically, especially initially if you're just starting out in the business, with an attorney that understands real estate, with a CPA that understands real estate. And I know if you go to your local Cincinnati or greater Cincinnati REA meeting, I'm sure you'll find plenty of referrals to those types of folks. Establish the foundation of that strategy with the formation of the um, type of entities that make the most sense for your not only business but your personal model. 
and then supplement that with insurance. Our program, we don't sell any less than a million, and we really, we, we've got opportunities to go to more than a million, but in my mind, personally, I'm not uncomfortable offering, so to speak, a million dollars of liability coverage for these investment properties. Now, all that stated as well, in our program, those 36, 37, however many thousand locations we're insuring on a monthly basis right now, they're predominantly one to four families and mostly single families. So we're not dealing in those um, large apartment complexes. If that's where you're investing, your strategy may be a little bit different, but the predominant amount of what you and I would know is those um, uh, mom-and-pop investors. I, you know, I think a million dollars, I'm pretty comfortable with that. All right. What about uh, – I got another question that's a bigger one. I know we're going to have another break coming. Let me start this, and we may have to come back to this after the break. Okay, entrepreneurs, we get a little creative in our deals. We're looking at putting together packages that work for the seller and work for the buyer, work for the tenant. Sometimes we're buying with an existing loan, or the seller is providing seller financing, uh, a seller-held mortgage or a land contract. How do you, how do we know whether we're getting these things insured right? What is the right way to name the parties in a different kind of transaction? You know, in a land trust or a land contract. Uh, what do you, you know? What are your comments about who should be named on the policies? Yeah, I kind of we right. I think we can come back and answer some of this after the break. But the, my initial response to that would be is something to which I alluded a few minutes ago, and that is if you and when I say you again, I mean you or your entity that you selected to own, manage, or control that in that particular property. If you own it, then you should be the first named insured. If you're anywhere else listed on that insurance contract, you're behind the first named insured when it comes to garnering the benefits from it. So we'll get into subject to investing and some of these other things, but the bottom line is any other way than you being the first named insured in that insurance contract could set you up for some disappointment when a claim occurs. All right. By the way, on that subject of actual cash value versus replacement value, I will share my uh, – I had a house burned down a few years ago. The tenant burned it down, left a, uh, uh, I believe, a, a curling iron or something plugged in in the bathroom. Son woke up to a house full of smoke, couldn't find the fire. So what did he do? He got dressed, went over to his aunt's and played video games, didn't dial 911, didn't report to his mom. Hey, mom, the house is full of smoke. I paid 40 for it. I put in another 20. I think I owed about 75 on it. I did some cash out back in those days. Uh, it was probably worth 100 before the crash. When it burned down and it had to be uh, demolished, I got a $192,000 settlement which allowed me to both pay off the mortgage and put some money in my pocket and cover the demolition. And uh, so I was very pleased at having spent the extra for an actual, for a replacement value policy and not walked away with enough to pay off the mortgage and have to worry about what am I going to do next. So I'm a little bit conservative. And, and my experience there, I figure I made about an extra $110,000 for having that. So I'm a fan of the... Uh, replacement costs because boy it yeah, paid exactly. off it paid off big way for me yeah and that stated i don't know how long ago that occurred but you know the, the flip side to that is if you look at the premiums you pay now granted you if you want to call it fortune you were fortunate you experienced that claim and you actually got a little bit of profit call it what it is but by nature insurance isn't designed to have profit involved in it it's based upon the theory of indemnification now granted you know as well as i do many times as a real estate investor where we can garner labor materials at less than retail rates, more often than not, since most claims are in fact partial losses and not total losses like you just described, 
more often than not, paying, paying for actual cash value coverage, a lower rate, a lower cost, if you will, and still being able to make the repairs to bring rental properties or investment properties back to rentable condition and still have a little bit of money in your pocket, more often than not, that's the, that's the, the, um, the methodology that we try to employ or recommend because why pay the insurance company more premium than they really, really need? Well, I can understand that. All right, well, it's time for a break. We'll be back in a few. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing with Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox. My guest today talking about the scintillating subject of insurance is Tim Norris. Tim, we had a question came in, uh, an email question uh, from a gentleman, uh, Steve, in Raleigh, North Carolina, beautiful area. Uh, Steve asked the question. He says, I'm a longtime listener and occasional questioner. Uh, he noted that the show gave him confidence in 2007 to start acting on his plans and buy quality student housing near North Carolina State University. And they now have three buildings and 53 units leased. So his question is, how should he think about general liability across these three buildings? I'm trying to imagine a worst-case scenario and see if I'm covered. And what if someone falls down the steps and becomes permanently disabled? What kind of coverage do I need, and should I increase it as I add additional buildings or additional units? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, frankly, we've probably answered a lot of that, at least in my mind we've answered it, in that a lot of that depends on that which we ha which he has to protect. In other words, um, if he structured the ownership and the control of those assets in a manner that insulates him personally, which is really your ultimate goal, is to kind of build that castle walls and that moat that I've mentioned kind of around your stuff, um, then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a million dollars in coverage is um, it goes a long way. Um, depending upon his legal advisor's um, attitudes towards structuring um, entities that, for each individual location, again, to insulate him personally, I just don't know. I'm just, I own 14 houses with some partners um, in southwest Ohio. I think we've got two LLCs. Each of those houses has a million dollars in liability insurance They're on, it, per occurrence, two million aggregate, which means per, per contract or per policy year. Um, and I'm not uncomfortable with that as an agent. I'm not saying you don't need more. I'm not saying that Steve's example of somebody becoming personal, personally disabled, slipping down the steps or whatever necessitates that you need more. I'm just comfortable knowing how I've structured the ownership of those um, investment property assets and the fact that I've got um, a million dollars of liability. I'm, I'm comfortable there. And Steve may not be comfortable there. Maybe he thinks $2 million is enough. Maybe he thinks $3 million is enough. Again, I think it's a combination of the work you do with those advisors that I've mentioned as well as the insurance as an ancillary or a um, symbiotic relationship, so to speak, between the two. Now, if he had three properties in three separate LLCs, then they would all need a, their own individual coverages versus if they were all three held in one LLC. Is that right? Yeah, with most carriers, they would that would necessitate that they would uh, have to have three different policies, which obviously would probably increase the cost a little bit. I know there are programs that exist. Ours is one of them where we aggregate all owned manager-controlled locations under one account if the client wants to, yet we still segregate them on a per-location basis. This is not the venue, of course, to get in the weeds on that, but it really just depends on the carrier 
and it may increase the cost a little bit. But if that gives Steve a little bit of peace of mind and gives him the ability to sleep a little bit better than night, you know, then so be it. All right, let's go back to that question about different kinds of structured transactions. Uh, sometimes people buy a house uh, subject to an existing mortgage. The, 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 the original homeowner's mortgage stays in place. The buyer now makes a payment to the owner that's then you know paid to the bank. Uh, to the bank, the original buyer still has, has the, comp- has the pro- uh, property, and they're going to expect that buyer to be insured. In fact, when another person puts insurance on it, sometimes it makes the bank say, well, why is there... Why is the second party insuring your property? How do you approach those sort of subject to insurance coverages? Yeah, let's of course make the big assumption that most everybody hopefully understands what subject to investing is. But again, with that assumption in mind, the way we have always recommended that you structure the insurance is this. The entity that you've created, even if it's just you individually, to buy that property from the seller with the mortgage still in place, that entity or person should be the first named insured. The mortgage company should be listed as they are on the existing or the old homeowner's policy, if you will. The mortgagee clause is appropriate, enough coverage, of course, to cover the mortgage amount, the loan number, all the things that the lender is looking for when they get those old evidences of insurance in. And then we always recommend that we name the prior owner as an additional insured only, not a loss payee relative to a property claim on that new policy, but as an additional insured. And the reason we do that is typically, more often than not, that satisfies the bank. In other words, of course, the due on sale clauses, which is the big red herring out there that most subject to investors are concerned with, um, the insurance, you don't want it to be a trigger to prompt that due on sale clause to, to come into play. So by naming the old owner, on the policy as an additional insured only doesn't give them any benefits to the property side of the policy because they don't own the property anymore. You really don't want them to. That typically, 99 times literally out of 100, that keeps the mortgage company happy. Um, Let's talk briefly, if you don't mind, about ways not to insure properties you've acquired subject to a mortgage. I've seen many bits of advice, I think wrong advice, out there on the web on some of these aforementioned websites that I try to go in the best I can and correct. If you keep the old homeowner's policy in force and then you name yourself as an additional insured, even as a lost payee, again, if you're not the first named insured, you're not the party that's going to get that check. You may be a second party to that check, but you still got to chase down the old owner. If you're only an additional insured on that old homeowner's policy and the insurance company actually does pay a claim, Well, who do they pay the claim to? They don't pay it to you because you're only an additional insured for the liability side of the coverage there. They're going to pay it to the old homeowner, the homeowner that's named on that policy. And third, and probably the most important is, typically when you buy a property subject to the mortgage, the old homeowner is out of there. You're going to fix it up, put it back together, and you're going to put a tenant in there. Well, if the homeowner's policy is that which is there to cover the property and it's no longer used as an owner-occupied home, Insurance companies, by rights, could deny any claim because it's the wrong type of insurance on that property at that point. I've also heard people say, well, you know what? I'm going to keep the old homeowner's policy in force, and I'm going to buy the new investment property, Tim, that your people have told me to do. I'm going to name my LLC, and I'm going to do everything you told me to do. Here's the challenge, though. Most insurance contracts on the property side of things have a clause in them that I'm not giving to you verbatim, but to paraphrase, that basically indicates that if any other insurance exists on this property, our insurance is secondary. 
Well, if you've got two policies that say that, who pays first? In my mind, if I've got a property that I want to get fixed back up and put a tenant in, I sure as heck don't want a two-month battle over whose policy is going to pay what. So, again, if you own it, you insure it. Even if that takes a little bit of a risk to do so relative to that due-on-sale clause, to me, I'd rather have the right type of insurance when I need it than no insurance when something occurs. All right. That's interesting because I think I've got one in that position. Uh, what about a land trust where uh, there's some person, you know, uh, John Smith trustee whose name is on title, uh, but John isn't directly involved. He was part of you know, how the property was acquired in the name of a trust. Uh, the homeowner should, again, make sure that they're insured the same way you just talked about or the investor owner? Yeah, that's a, that's a little more um, complex because you probably know better than I. Different states have different rules and laws relative to land contracts. I think it's was it Texas? You can't even call them land contracts. I'm not that familiar with every state. In my mind, I would lean upon, if I were you, the advice of the attorney that's putting that land contract together, assuming you're using one. In other words, who should be named as the first named insured may be relative to the contractual language of the trust language itself, um, or the land contract itself, I should say. So again, not to try, try to pass. I was or, talking about a land trust, not not a land contract, because that kind of falls. Well, that's that's a, that's another interesting question. The same. Yeah, no, yeah. I think anything to do with a contract, I think you again we as the insurance company or the provider of the insurance would follow the advice of the attorney because some of those, whether it be a land trust or a land contract, the language may be a little um, different from state to state and even deal to deal. I'm not, not exactly sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to bounce around to another subject before I come up to this next question. Uh, I'm a property manager. I'm a realtor. I, I have uh, properties I take care of for other people that I'm their agent. When I, if I send in someone to do a repair and they're not a, let's say an electrical repair very specifically, and they are not an electrician, they are not licensed, uh, they're just, but they go in and they change the outlets, and then there's a fire. Uh, have I created an exposure because I had an unlicensed person doing electric work? Yeah, I think the fire itself creates an exposure for everyone involved in that scenario. Um, the fact that you use an unlicensed electrician and depending on the state or even the municipality, if such work required a licensed electrician, you as the property manager may be a little bit more, for lack of a better term, culpable in that scenario. Um, again, it's more of a non-legal attorney type opinion. Um, the liability coverage, you know, would still be there in, in place for the property owner itself. Now, depending on the contract you have with your owners, um, you may have created an exposure for you as their property manager because you didn't do a... Um, you know, proper due diligence on the contractor you use. I think we're starting to delve into some legal issues that I'm not obviously equipped to answer um, with any credence behind them. Um, but my attitude is in those situations, you know, using a contractor, not only that's licensed and properly, for lack of a better term, regulated, I hate to use that word, but um, it's probably a good advice as well. And probably more importantly, anybody that's, whether you're a property manager or an owner using other parties to service um, things on your properties, my attitude is to always garner what's, what are known as certificates or evidence of insurance for not only their liability but their workman's comp or their worker's comp um, before they step foot on that property. Because in, in that situation, 
your hypothetical situation using that electrician, uh, licensed or not, if they have insurance, they have liability insurance, and they screw something up that does property damage, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, then you've got some place to go to garner protection. They screwed up. It's their liability that typically should respond in that situation. If they're not insured, the liability coverage for the owner typically is going to respond, but nonetheless, now you're dealing with your insurance on something that a hazard or a, an incident that wasn't created by you or your, you as the property manager, you as the property owner. So my best advice is anybody stepping on that property better be darn well insured. Well, and I started using electricians for most of that stuff for that very reason. I didn't want to have a liability when something goes wrong and they say, well, who did all this electric? And we're saying, well, my contractor. I like saying my licensed electrician. I feel like yeah, that's exactly. a little covering my bottom. Well, we're, we're time yeah. for our one more break here, so we'll be back in a couple minutes. If you have questions, uh, last chance to call us in at uh, locally, 513-772-9658, or out of the local region, 877-772-9658, or email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Tim Norris is joining us today talking about insurance. Tim, I just got two questions via email. Yeah, I got I think we got three. I got I got three emails and about seven questions in them. Okay, well let's uh I see that. The one from uh Vina actually. Uh some kind of sophisticated topics. Could you explain the basic insurance options for real estate secured note holders? Yeah, the, the, it's the time that we have remaining is probably not going to allow me to get into the depth to answer that question. I'm not trying to avoid it at all, but that that'll monopolize what time we have left. Um, just again, think of it this way: as a note holder, and again, the terminology I use likely isn't per- correct fully, but think of the note as a note holder. You you're the kind of the mortgagee, so to speak. In other words, you don't own the property. Maybe you want to if you ever foreclose or something goes probably going south, depending on what's a performing or non-performing note, of course. But in and of itself, some of the options you have, the term force place, which I think is one of her questions a little bit further down in her string here. Right. Um, if you think of you know the Bank of Americas of the world and some of these other um, big box lenders, so to speak, that you've got your homeowner's policy and it renews and all of a sudden you get a letter about three weeks after renewal from Bank of America who hold the mortgage, and they said, well, hey, we don't have proof of insurance. If we don't get it from you here in the next 10 days, we're going to force place coverage. We're going to put our own coverage on that property. It's not going to protect you at all. It's really going to protect us. And by the way, if you don't get that proof of your coverage in here, we're going to charge you for it. We're going to tack it onto the loan. That is force place insurance. When it comes to a note holder, you may have an interest in the note itself, and again, I'm not giving you legal terminology here as best I can, but um, you may technically not have an interest in the property yet other than you hope to acquire, maybe potentially acquire that property one day. Now, again, I'm not trying to um, fly our flag here, but we have a little bit of a program there to allow note investors to actually get some coverage for that property while it's still under, if you will, that initial phases of that note. In other words, you bought the note, you have no idea what's going on in the house yet, you have no idea whether it's still occupied. If it's not, whether it's protected or not, we offer some minimum benefit at a high cost to protect you on that note. Now, if I'm that note investor and the lot itself is actually worth as much or even more than what I invested in that note, in my mind, I'm not paying for the insurance. 
it burns to the ground and I've got a lot there that's still worth more than the, than the note I bought, then I'm just going to go from, you know, leave it at that. Um, one of our other questions is, is there a liability exposure? I think it was her question. Yeah, there it is. As a note holder, again, maybe something you want to check with your attorney. But in my mind, if you just hold the note, you have no liability exposure on that property yet. None. You don't own the property. It's not your exposure yet. You hold the note to the property. It's not dissimilar from the Bank, the bank of America example I gave. If somebody slips and falls in your home and Bank of America holds the note, they ain't suing Bank of America. They're suing you. So, again, as a note holder, I don't feel you have any liability exposure. An attorney out there could differ from that um, or give different advice, but that's just my take. I wouldn't buy the liability insurance as a note holder. Um, difference I, between listed as mortgagee and lost payee, that was the question. I think, Jim, not And also additional insured. <laughs> that's the third term. Yeah, additional insured. Technically, a lost payee is an additional insured. In other words, an additional insured is just that an entity or someone that's actually additionally insured in that contract. Typically, though, you'll hear agents use the term additional insured as it relates to somebody that's also protected on the liability insurance. They'll use the term lost payee that someone would garner a property claim check. So um, think of it this way, a lost payee, let's say I bought a uh, $20,000 copy machine, you know, one of those nice Ricos or whatever, and I've leased it. I shouldn't say I bought it, I actually leased it. And in the terms of a lease, the leasing company requires that my property insurance names them as a lost payee relative to that $20,000 piece of equipment. In other words, if a property claim occurred and the insurance company paid out on that piece of equipment, that leasing company waited to make sure that they're protected as well. Where an additional insured, again, typically is thought of as somebody that garners liability protection. So you as a property manager may say to your um, property manager client, hey, on all your 12 investment properties that I'm managing, I want to make sure that I'm, if I'm not inherently an additional insured with the insurance contract, that I want to be named as an additional insured in case Joe Tennant slips and falls and he sues everybody involved. Because Joe Tennant doesn't know you, he knows me and my firm. So that would be thought of or typically understood to be an additional insured exposure or additional insured endorsement, so to speak. Um, I think, was that everything she had on there? I, I think Looks so. Looks like it was. I had one other question come in. We've got about a minute or two left. Let me see if I can get this other one. Uh, a gentleman, uh, John, John wrote in and said, why is it that insurance companies don't typically put out bids each year on your portfolio unless you press the issue? Uh, he said that yeah, I think John, not to correct him, I think he's, I think he's referencing insurance agencies. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple of big box cares, the state farms of the world, the all states of the world. With some exception, those companies are represented by what are known as captive agents. Those agents only represent their company or companies. The typical independent agent, um, typically the, the public thinks that they can represent any carrier. Well, most independent agents really only have contracts with a few carriers, especially as um, the requirements of the carriers from a volume perspective have grown through the years. Most independent agents, unless they're the really, really large brokerages, don't have that many contracts. So unless there's a good reason for an agent who has, let's say, two or three contracts with um, independent-driven carriers, unless they have a really good reason to shop the rate, whether it be a large rate increase or whether a claims history that um, manifests in um, a carrier actually wanting to drop a client of theirs, typically they won't do it because the cost involved to them to reshop, to remarket that, is, is usually offset, um, 
usually offsets any additional commission that they may garner from that which John alludes to here in his email again. That of course nobody but you and I can see, Jim. Jim that says you know, understanding that companies get credits they can use to acquire new accounts. Well, it's still there's a cost involved to remarket those accounts. So again, there's a misconception I think that independent agents have the ability to go to every insurance company out there, and that's not the case at all. All right, Tim, uh, we are right up on the edge here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, obviously, we could have talked another hour or two on these topics. Uh, we appreciate your time. Everyone else, uh, come back next week. Vina will be back. And good luck with your real estate investing.